This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 132, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Thanks for spending part of your day with us. We're featuring a series this month called 2019 to Look Ahead. Today, we're discussing the labor markets, 2018 ending with very positive news. The economy adding 312,000 new jobs in December, bringing the year's total to around 2.6 million. Wages grew, by the way, to 3.2%. The labor participation rate climbed over 63%, meaning more people were coming back into the workforce, which also nudged the unemployment rate a bit higher, up to 3.9%. And as 2019 starts, 20 states and around uh, two dozen cities are raising the minimum wage. Plus, employees are asking for more to be done to protect their personal data, address sexual harassment, the wage gap, and better benefits. At the same time, the country is feeling the effects of the government shutdown, the trade war, and a shaky Wall Street. So, what can we expect in this coming year? Peter Capelli, Director of the Center for Human Resources and Professor of Management here at the Wharton School, joining me in studio. Happy New Year. Good to see you. Thank you, Dan. Happy New Year to you. So, Let's start with the numbers that uh, were released recently. Uh, The December jobs numbers were good. The numbers, when you look at labor, uh, seemingly better as we head into 2019. So how do you feel about that picture as a whole going into the new year? Yeah, let's uh, maybe spend just a couple of minutes on those numbers, the job numbers in particular, and just remind folks a little bit about what they mean and what they don't mean, right? So uh, the big number we want to look at every month is the number of new jobs. These are net new jobs, right? So that means that uh, some people, some jobs are always going away, others are always coming in, and so we're asking on balance how many new jobs are there, net of those that are falling apart away. And we need, some people say, about 140,000 new jobs, net new jobs, every month to keep up with population growth. Although, as we'll see in a minute, that's always a little quirky as to whether that number might be right or not. And then we added uh, this last month, it appears, over 300,000. Now, these numbers are never perfect. And you know, they always go back and uh, look at them more carefully and get new data, and they adjust them sometimes upward, sometimes downward. You can sort of bet if the numbers seem low, they're going to adjust them up. higher. Yeah, and yeah. if they seem high, they're going to probably adjust them um, down. But it's a big number. Now, here's the interesting thing: the uh, we added three hundred and twelve uh, yeah. uh, thousand new jobs this last month, and the unemployment rate went up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So we usually think the unemployment rate is the measure we want to pay attention to. It's it's probably not. It's the one that people see the most. It gets the most attention. And this month indicates why that's peculiar. And that is we added a ton of new jobs this month and the unemployment rate went up. Why is that? That's because the other part of unemployment, it's not just uh, the number of jobs. It's really about the number of people who are looking Right. It's not the number of people who are without jobs. And I read an interesting history about this. Apparently, um, years, 100 years or so ago, the state of Massachusetts uh, was trying to calculate their unemployment rate. And the 
idea was uh, how many people are out of work is really what you'd want to know. But those numbers were so big, they didn't want to report them. Sure. So they decided to report the number of people who are actively looking as opposed to the number <laughs> of people who are out of work. Right? Yeah. And so the reason that number, unemployment rate, is so peculiar is that it can go up or down based on how many people are actively looking. So what happened this month is even though we added a huge number of new jobs for that month, more people started looking than before. Because it was a good month for jobs, a lot of people who were unemployed and not looking, so they weren't counted as unemployed, but they didn't have a job, came back into the labor market and starts to look. Now, the reason that is so interesting for us is the big question for most people, particularly people who study the economy is how tight is the labor market, Sure, right? That's a big question we're always kicking around. And we always hear these figures about, you know, or these ideas about the unemployment rate is so incredibly low. Uh, can it go further? Well, the answer is from this month, yeah, yeah. it could. Yeah. You know, we added so many new people to the labor market that the unemployment rate actually went up, right? And so that tells us something quite important, more important than the numbers this month, because they bounce around a lot, and they get adjusted basically in the other direction. And yep. that is the labor market is not as tight as we probably thought, because there are so many people who came back in to the labor market looking for jobs, had not been looking before, that we probably got a fair ways to go before we start worrying about the labor market getting so tight that wages get pushed up, which is the thing we're really concerned about. You want wages to go up, but you don't want them to go up so fast that right. we get a lot of inflation. Right? There's still obviously a, a, a lot of questions around wages and where we're headed with that. And even though we see that, as I mentioned, that that 3.2% increase, there's still, I think, a, a good bit of concern about the fact that seemingly wages are maybe not picking up as fast as they need to, and maybe not picking up to the point where it's it's basically covering the increase in inflation as well. Right, and it has not. Uh, it has not caught up with uh, and passed inflation. So another way to say that is real wages, which is what you care about, have been pretty flat, depending on who you're talking about, which group, for a very long period of time. And if you're looking at men and just their wages, you see that real wages have been on a decline for a generation. Yeah. Um, and that is a quite astonishing thing to, to think about, right? That the amount uh, that you could buy with your paycheck for the average male in the U.S. has been going down for a generation. We're worse off than our parents. Now, on the other hand, the good news or the better news is real wages for women have been going up. Right. And most of that, I think, is because of declines in discrimination and increasing efforts uh, by women to get into the labor force and to take on bigger jobs and jobs that used to be all male jobs that are paying more, right? So the experience of men and women has been quite different in this. But you can also see how this starts to play out into politics, particularly sure. the stories about uh, men being angry about their experience in the workforce. And you can see why their experience has been quite different. We're joined by Peter Capelli of the Wharton School. We're talking about uh, the year ahead in labor and employment. You're listening to Knowledge of Wharton here on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Your comments are welcome on the phone at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. I, I saw a comment uh, recently, Peter, that that basically said, and this is something I think has been out there before, but it's interesting, I think, that it is still out there, is that 
one of the best ways to get a pay raise these days is to go and get a new job. Yeah, isn't that a terrible thing, yeah. right? Because uh, it seems to be true. Uh, we just had somebody on our uh, radio show on Thursday in the workplace uh, at 5 o'clock. Uh, we had somebody from Mercer, the consulting company, and Human Resources, and they do a survey every year of – uh, companies, employers, and their HR people. And the plans that companies have for uh, pay increases this year um, are below the rate of inflation. It was two point something still. And it, and it has a been basically about that for right. a very long time. And the reason that is so interesting, of course, is if you really thought the labor market was really, really tight, you'd expect wages to be going up. Sure. Uh, on the other hand, as you say, there's evidence, depending who you talk to, that you get maybe a 20 percent bump by crossing the street to do exactly the same job that you're doing right here. Right. Um, and, you know, my quick look at the evidence suggests about 95 plus percent of vacancies that we're trying to fill – we're trying to fill because somebody just left them. Sure. Right? So it's not the number of new jobs in an economy with about 167 million people working in it. Adding 300,000 net new jobs matters, but it's not that big a deal. Right. Mainly, hiring is about backfilling the people who cross the street to get those that 20 percent pay bump, and you're not paying your own employees. Um, enough to keep up with inflation, they can cross the street to get a 20% pay bump. So guess what's going yeah. on, right? And, which is interesting because, and we've talked with you before about this, is the fact that companies right now understand the cost that it, that they incur when they lose an employee and they have to go through the process of finding a new employee. Yeah. So it's surprising that they don't try and make an adjustment within their own company to raise the pay rate, maybe not that 20%, right. but let's say... 10%, right. 8%, whatever right. that number ends up being, in order to keep that employee there yep. and not have to incur the cost mm -hmm. of having to fill that job again. Right. And I think, uh, unfortunately, one of our tasks in the world of uh, research in the business side is to explain to people that business, uh, business people are just like other human beings, yeah. and we do things that make uh, sometimes not a lot of sense. Sure. Yeah. And so we say that uh, you know employers know that. They know it conceptually, but you'd be really surprised, and I'm always surprised when I ask companies this question, do you know what turnover costs you, what it costs if somebody leaves? And they don't. Yeah. You know, they know it kind of in their heart that it's got to cost a lot, but they don't bother to figure it out. It's not that hard to figure out. It's, they just figure it's like a cost of a cost of the of the company. Well, this is a great question because I don't think we know exactly what's going on. But let me give you my guess in okay. terms of how they think about this. They don't have the number front and center on the table at their board meetings and at their operating committee meetings. It right. says it costs us, if somebody leaves, it costs us, you know, in lost productivity and other things, fifty, sixty thousand $60,000, whatever that is. Right. So what they um, focus on is a simpler decision rule. And let's be frank, if you're running any organization, you can't run it with a series of really, really complicated calculations that people have to run every few minutes to figure out what to do. So they use rules of thumb. And when people talk about organization culture, that's what they're really sure. thinking about. Yeah. And so the norm in lots of places is just be as cheap as possible. Sure, yeah. And so if you say, uh, <laughs> we want to give people a raise here in case they uh, think about moving, if you're somebody who's a stickler CFO, you'd say, no, well, wait until they... Um, 
we see that they actually have to do it. Right. right. And so they end up, instead of preempting these things, they end up paying after the fact. So it's kind of like thinking about preventative medicine or waiting until you get sick and then going to the hospital, right? In some cases, going to the emergency room makes perfect sense and not trying to, say, pad <laughs> yeah. yourself up in right. case I, I might fall, right. right? But in the other cases, things like not worrying about your heart condition and thinking you're just going to get to the emergency room and they'll deal with it then is a really inefficient way to deal with things. And that's kind of where we are now, I think. We are also joined now by Yvonne Barenke, who is uh, Associate Professor of Management and Associate Professor of Business Economics and Public Policy here at the Wharton School. Yvonne, Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you, too. How are you? I'm doing very well. So give us your kind of overall viewpoint of the labor markets and employment right now. Because as we mentioned with Peter, the numbers, the jobs numbers have been pretty good, yet there are still many issues surrounding the workplace right now. And so how do you view where we are now and and maybe how we are changing as we head into 2019? I think the the big uh the big story these days or the big question is is whether a, a real recession will come or a slow decline will come and when will it come? Um and it is a big story for me because what we have seen since the last big recession um, was, you know, the economy has grown again, employment has grown. We are beyond what many people think is full employment now, but wages really hasn't haven't risen that much. So my real worry is is what will uh, what will the landscape uh, for employees be like when the re- when the recession will hit, because. It's not like they had like lavish wage increases over the last decade so that companies now would say, well, this is a good reason to cut back on wages for you. So there's not really that buffer. Um, And so I'm really worried that when the recession will come, this will really hit employment quite quickly and quite hard. Um, And uh, so this is what, what keeps me up at night. It keeps me up at night. Because we don't have a good explanation of why wages haven't increased all that much. This is kind of one of those fundamental rules in, in economics that, you know, in, when, we, when there's wage growth, um, you know, when there's economic growth and expansion of labor market, uh, wages will catch up too, but they didn't do it this time. So this is what... Uh, what really worries me a lot. We are seeing more and more cities, Yvonne, uh, increasing the minimum wage in their towns, specifically themselves. And, and it's been a question that I think a lot of people have wondered, who really is this going to fall on? Is this is this something that falls in the lap of the federal government? Is it something that is at the state level? It's seemingly more and more something that, that individual cities are willing to tackle. And, and it looks like that pattern is going to continue for the future. Um, to me, this is a separate topic. Um, the, there has been a lot of research now on, on minimum wages. And sure, there are some papers who, who say that, oh, I look at this corner of the data and uh, da-da, when minimum wage goes up, employment uh, suffers or wages suffers. But I think in general, across various scenarios, um, an increase in minimum wage is not accompanied by, by hurting employment. You know, what really worries me here and why I think it's a distinct topic for another reason is that when we think about the next recession coming and employment shrinking, the bulk of employment really is in the middle class. So these are not really people who are hovering around the minimum wage. So they're not affected by that constraint at all. Um, And uh, so this is why I think this is a somewhat uh, separate topic. Peter? 
You know, I think it is a really interesting thing which has happened only in our lifetime, and that is to see the federal policies and the state policies diverging so much, yep. and particularly, as as you say, Dan, the city policies differing even from the state policies. And I think what this reflects is, is not so much economics as it reflects politics. Right? Sure, yeah. And that is we've yep. never had such big divides uh, within the country as to how we see things like the status of employees, the role of employers and business, which varies wildly from one state to the other. Yeah. And I think we've had, uh, at the federal level, you know, the gap between what the federal government is willing to do, given the political landscape there, versus what pockets of local communities are willing to do, because in a city like Philadelphia, right, the question is simply how big will the margin of victory be for the Democrats? Sure, yes. And the Democrats at the city level are also comparing themselves, the leaders anyway, they're comparing themselves to the leaders in other Democrat cities. And they're trying to make sure that they're on the cutting edge, right? So once one city adopts some innovation like a higher minimum wage, then the others who are all in the same party and they're all competing for leadership, and frankly, they're not going to lose an election because they raised the minimum wage in their city. Uh, there's no Republican voters that are going to vote them out because there's not enough. Well, that and that's the thing about Philadelphia for people listening around the country is the fact that Democratic versus Republican voting base Democrats have, I believe, like 75% of the base here in Philadelphia compared to 25%. So that gives you an idea that realistically, they don't have to make this move in Philadelphia probably to to keep that control politically. But you're exactly right Right. that it is an element of politics here. And Boston, same thing, and New York City, and every big city in the U.S., uh, right, is Democratic. And so they see the minimum wage at the federal level stagnating. And they're, you know, disturbed by this. And what can we do about it? Well, we can not just minimum wages, but uh, medical leave and uh, vacation policies, all kinds of things are popping up in municipal regulations. This was this was also a a year, gentlemen, where uh, the the Me Too movement made an impact. And we saw quite a few executives, uh, Yvonne, uh, having to leave their positions because of indiscretions that they had in in the office place. And while those make a, a lot of news headlines, I wanted to get your opinion on how you think some of these things are, are, are impacting the core of companies around, around the United States. This is, this is a fascinating question for me, um, absolutely. And to the listeners, we also invite you to join the, the other show. We will talk about this uh, with, with Peter Capelli in the workplace. We have some interesting guests coming up in, in one or two weeks. Um, but... It is interesting because of the because of the empirical dimension of it. Um, yes, in the news we see some you know movie directors and CEOs and their stories around that. But if you look at surveys, a large proportion I, you know the, the numbers vary between you know a fifth and half or even two thirds of people have experienced um, uh, you know sexual oppression or inequality, and you know. The question is, you know, how do you deal, uh, how will companies deal with, uh, with this large number of victims and this large number of perpetrators? And it is, it is particularly interesting because, um, sure, you know, I'm not talking about, you know, uh, criminal cases. Uh, sure. You know, yeah. let, let's just put them aside here. Yeah. Just people who have uh, had, like, really terrible experiences, and they are a couple of years old now. Now, most formal um, structures or HR, HR procedures would say, well, 
that's more than three or five years ago. So that's old news. So you can't we can't really pursue this anymore. This statute of limitations no longer really applies because of social movements and social media. And this is what our guest will be about. Who, when there is just uh, a lot of testimony around certain companies or certain people, even if they are old, they will become salient and they can really disrupt the workplace. And I think this is a great thing. But, but I, I will be very curious to see how you know big organizations think about that given the large magnitude of, of these cases. Um, uh, some people have invoked maybe we should do something like in, in South Africa, the Truth and Reconciliation. I don't think that's uh, really an appropriate uh, uh, approach here, but I don't know what the what the uh, what the other approach is on that. And I, I'm, I'm curious to hear what Peter has to say about this, actually. Yeah, well, you'll, you'll hear right now. <laughs> so, so I think uh, uh, it is a really, of course, a big social issue of some real importance. I think there is a big divide between what happens in large companies with sophisticated policies and practices, where I think uh, they have been pretty intolerant for a very long period of time uh, about sexual harassment issues. And the reason is there are enormous consequences to the companies for, yeah. for doing it, uh, for allowing it, even knowing about it. And at least the companies that, that I watch, they have, always, they have taken this very seriously for a very long period of time. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't a lot of incidents that really happen, but it is quite telling if you look over the past year or so. All the big stories for well, I shouldn't say all, but except for CBS, I think uh, the stories of really egregious behavior uh, have been in small organizations, uh, ones that are often not corporations. Um, they don't have human resource departments, and they don't uh, take these issues as seriously partly as a result. So I, I have no doubt that when you get into smaller organizations that are not very professional, there is still a ton of sexual harassment uh, that goes on. In the bigger corporations, we, we really haven't seen, as a result of the Me Too movement, a ton of exposés about uh, big corporations and policies there. However, I think the big story for these bigger companies is still going to be uh, what do you do about this now given that there is greater sensitivity not just to behavior which is illegal, yeah. right? where they've always been very on top of that, I think, com at least compared to outside the big companies. But how about behavior which is just inappropriate? Sure. Right? And this, I think, is the great dilemma for corporations who really, really, really do not want to be in the role of homeroom monitor. Right? Yeah, yeah. But here's the thing. Uh, most companies do not have rules prohibiting dating in the workplace. Sure. Yeah. So they allow dating in the workplace. And in many cases, they discovered that they it's actually – uh, necessary because if you st if you prohibited people from dating in the workplace, that's where they meet people. That's where they're going to see each other. And if you make people who are dating uh, split up, you're going to lose people. Uh, somebody, one of them is going to quit, and you don't want that. So what do you do now? Uh, does this mean now that you're going to need to have rules about dating? And what do those rules look like? You know, so you ask somebody out in the workplace. Well, that's not prohibited. Uh, suppose they say no. You ask about a second time. Uh, suppose they say no. Okay. If you ask them a third time, that starts looking like a harassment. Pattern, yeah. Mm -hmm. And do you as an employer jump in and do something about that? Well, maybe you should, but now you're going to have a rule <laughs> that right. says, no, I'm sorry, two times, that's okay. Three times, that's a problem, right? One of the other uh, topics I wanted to get to before we end is parental leave, which is something that has been uh, talked about quite a bit especially in the last few years, when you think about the policies that are in place in other countries 
around the world, Peter, and the fact that the United States seemingly is well behind. Do we think we're going to see change on parental leave policy in the near future? And whether that is policy, again, at the state level, at the city level, or just company to company as well? Yeah, well, and maybe Yvonne can can comment, too, on around the world. But I think you are seeing this at municipal levels, right? So uh, in Philadelphia, we passed some sick leave uh, requirements, regulations for the city. And my guess is that we're going to start seeing more of these around parental leave. Uh, And the complication for doing this politically is parental leave can be really quite expensive for employers. And uh, the complication of doing it on a local basis is it really might start driving employers just outside the city limits, right, yep. even if they're going to be around here. And for sure you don't want to do that, right? And and you can't just keep regulating employers when they have the opportunity to move to a place where it would be cheaper to do this. So my guess is we're going to start seeing more local employers uh, or local governments doing this. My guess is you'll see states like California uh, ramping it up. Yeah. Uh, there'll be a lot of complaints about it. I guess is uh, starting to do it by making it unpaid. Uh, for sure, you'll start seeing more of that. Yeah. Um, but this is a problem of a decentralized country, which is pretty big. And if the federal government won't do things and we can't agree federally – you're going to start seeing these patchwork uh, regulations, which for employers is a real pain in the neck, right? You operate yeah. in 50 states. You have 50 separate rules sure, yeah. as to yeah. how to handle this stuff, and then it becomes a nightmare. Yvonne? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's very simple. As, as long as it's not a big political salient topic, uh, it's it's not really going to happen. I mean, I, I agree with Peter there. There are some attempts here or there. And you know this, these are welcome and, and great, but this is very very expensive policy, um, and it works particularly well when you know everybody does it. Uh, then it's then it's really a, a big cultural shift. But there's just no cultural history in the U.S. around this, um, so people don't really have living memory of <laughs> what it what it looks like if you actually can plan your entire career and you know time your your, your family planning and everything around uh, around these policies. So. Um, as long as it's not becoming a big uh, salient voting topic, uh, I don't think it will really catch on all that much. You know, one interesting thing just about that, Dan, though, is that one place where these policies start to bite is when we start thinking that they relate to declining birth rates, right? Yeah. And yeah. the U.S. has not yeah. had the problem the rest of the developed world has had because we've had so much immigration compared to European countries. But in France in particular, the declining birth rate led them to think about and introduce a whole series of more family-friendly policies because it did become a political issue, not right. just uh, not just a jobs issue, like where we're going to get the workers, which I think is a, a red herring issue, but, but about, uh, you know, the nature of the country itself and um, particularly the balance of immigrants versus uh, people who are already here, right? So then it becomes a political issue. Great having you both with us today. Thank you, Peter. Great seeing you. Thanks for coming in. Yvonne, great having you on the phone. Thank you, sir. Thank you. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.